This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. All right, folks, we are rocking and rolling to the finish line on the creation of Speed. That's right, for several months now, we have charted a most exhaustive course through the making of this movie. Today, we're going to cover the final ingredient, the bow that ties it all together, the cherry on top. You hear a little bit of it every single week at the end of each episode of 50 miles per hour. That's right, it's British rock superstar Billy Idol's contribution to speed. Speed! It's the title track of the film's original motion picture soundtrack. You remember the high-octane jam that closed out the movie and sent you out of the theater banging your head. Now, we're not only going to talk about the song today. Like I said, it was part of a soundtrack with some songs from the movie and others that were just along for the ride. Because Speed's original motion picture soundtrack was something of a concept album full of songs that kind of sort of related to the movie and the premise. Here's the track listing. See if you can spot the theme. Speed by Billy Idol. A Million Miles Away by The Plimsolls. Soul Deep by Jen Blossoms. That one doesn't count. Let's Go for a Ride by Cracker. Go Outside and Drive by Blues Traveler. Crash by Rick Ocasek. Rescue Me by Pat Benatar. Hard Road by Rod Stewart. Caught by Carnival Strippers. Another one that doesn't count. Cars 93 Spring by Gary Newman, Like a Motorway by Saint Etienne, and Mr. Speed by Kiss. Now, whose job was it to pull all these songs together? That would be Speed's executive soundtrack producer, Ralph Saul. Ralph has had an interesting trajectory. He was actually a Fox executive in the 80s when he was just a baby, 22 years old. He was on sets like Die Hard, reporting back to the suits upstairs, and I mean, Nobody his age was doing that job at the time. Even the assistants were older than him. Here's Ralph himself giving you a little more of his backstory. While I was there, one of the movies I was the executive in charge of was a movie called Less Than Zero. And I had the idea of getting Rick Rubin involved to do the music. And at the time... Licensed Ill was brand new, and the executives at the studio didn't really believe in my idea, but the head of production kind of was supportive. It was Elliot Lurie, who was very gracious. I have to say, if I was in his position and had some 22-year-old kid like spouting off about what they should be doing when he's the head of music, I'm not sure I would have been as gracious about it as he was. But I remember going to New York and getting Rick Rubin and he came to L.A. and never left. I was always a big music fan. So 
when I transitioned out of being an executive, there was a couple people who were producers on the lot that asked me to work on their movies. Um, Gail Ann Hurd being a big supporter of mine and helped me transition out into that realm. Ralph mentioned a guy named Elliot Lurie there. Lurie and another gentleman, Matt Walden, were running the Fox Music Department in the early 90s. Ralph had done a couple of movies for them, wrangling the soundtracks for things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and PCU. Killer cover of Pump It Up from Mud Honey on that, by the way. They gave Ralph a call to do something with speed, pull together some songs for a soundtrack album, and look, this is back in the day where this ancillary element of your film's release could make money and draw eyes to the movie in the process. We're in a different world now, but all I can tell you is in the 90s, it was boom time for this sort of thing. I mean, people don't buy CDs anymore, and so the idea of making a record that will exist in the marketplace and get on MTV and help market the movie, none of those things exist as they used to. You know, MTV <laughs> show videos and um people don't buy cds but at the time i mean it was a big driver of what music supervision was i mean obviously the first job always as a music supervisor is to enhance the movie in a normal situation i'm usually involved before production and you have a script and then you go over it with the filmmakers and um sometimes there's on camera uh songs that you need to do before production takes place something like i wrote and produced the song rolling with the homies which has endured as a signature part of the movie clueless but we did that you know, before the movie started shooting, then most of the time you're in post-production and looking for songs or creating songs for moments in a movie. And usually I was involved in movies that were usually heavily musical. Um, that's when people would call me. I was also always kind of like a fireman, which was like something they tried didn't work out and then you needed somebody to put something together quickly and efficiently i did a lot of that so before we get to the billy idol of it all let's talk about some of these songs a million miles away by the plimsolls for instance This was actually first released in 1982, but Ralph wanted to dust it off because he was a big power pop guy and he saw an opportunity to reunite the group for this one-off re-recording. I remember Peter Case was game for redoing it and I went so deep on that specifically. I even got like, I think it was the Williams brothers who um, did the backgrounds on the original, came back to do them on this version as well. I think the idea of redoing it was to give it sort of a more of a 90s edge 
of the time, but also to potentially have something else that could be worked from the record or the movie that a licensed song, you wouldn't have that opportunity. I don't think they ended up doing anything like that with it, but that was the idea at the time. I'm a big fan of this song, by the way. The Goo Goo Dolls had also covered it four years prior on their 1990 album Hold Me Up, way before they blew up in the mainstream. It just has a certain 90s vibe to it, certainly the re-recording anyway. And that's Ralph's wheelhouse. He also produced a record during this period called Saturday Morning Cartoons Greatest Hits, which features alternative artists like Liz Fair, Sponge, Matthew Sweet, Collective Soul, Butthole Surfers, and Violent Femmes doing covers of cartoon songs. So that's the head he's going into the Speed Project with. You know, it's definitely an alternative mode. Although if you certainly look, things like Kiss and Rod Stewart are not alternative, but uh, they had appropriately titled songs. If not the subject matter, I don't believe that the Kiss song, Mr. Speed, has anything to actually do with cars. <laughs> but I remember going down to the recording studio to get that uh, Rick Ocasek song. I think it was otherwise unreleased. I was a big fan of the Cars, and I think I contacted them to see if they had anything that would be appropriate. And obviously, you know, a song called Crash fit my concept. I remember going down to the studio where Rick was recording and grabbing it out of the recording studio. So I I don't remember it being otherwise released, but I could be wrong. I, I'm pretty sure it just appeared on this. Ralph is also, just to add, credited as being the sort of father of the commercially successful tribute album, having produced records like Dedicated, A Tribute to the Grateful Dead, Common Thread, The Songs of the Eagles, and Stoned Immaculate, The Music of the Doors. Now, the only other song outside of Billy Idol's Speed that got a lot of play in the marketing of the film was, of all things, the Pat Benatar cover of the 1965 Fontella Bass mainstay, Rescue Me. It played in a number of TV spots for the film, and frankly, it sort of rubs against the grain of the movie and the whole vibe it's trying to put out, as well as the vibe that the soundtrack was trying to put out. Don't miss the bus for the thrill ride of summer. Very exciting, Jack. That was a nice move, man. Are these seats taken? I've never seen driving like that. Ralph did not produce that one. He chalked it up to Fox executives putting it together with Benatar, and he also notes that the Carnival Strippers song, Cot, was just sort of added to the mix because they were signed to Fox at the time. But the journey of Rescue Me is kind of interesting. 
let me bring back composer Mark Mancina, who wrote the original score for Speed. Here's my idea. I said to Jan, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get Annie Lennox. I'm going to do the arrangement. And she's going to sing Rescue Me from the 60s. Rescue Me, Annie Lennox voice in a techno version that's got a speed type thing to it. Awesome idea. Um, nope. They're going to get Billy Idol. and He's going to write Speed is What I Need. And you need to go over there and meet him and stuff. And I was like, I don't know. I always have these, these grand ideas and, and, you know, I always think they're great ideas. Maybe they're terrible ideas. And we come to it at last. Speed. Four minutes and 22 seconds of blistering pop thunder with Billy Idol on the mic and his longtime collaborator, Steve Stevens, shredding on guitar. Here's what Ralph had to say about how the idea initially came together. There was always going to be an end title song. I thought of Billy Idol. I just thought that uh, him and Steve Stevens could come up with something that would be good for the movie. You know, I think it turned out to be his last actual real hit rock track that he's had. So it was kind of on, I guess, the tail end of his massive popularity i think probably the song might have been even bigger had it been worked by a a record label that wasn't so fledgling as fox records i had never worked with billy before that but i'm pretty sure he had the same manager as tom petty and the heartbreakers and i had worked with the heartbreakers a number of times and i think i just called over there about his availability. I think the window for doing all of this was pretty tight. Like I said, it all happened in post. And um, oftentimes in situations like that, it's just a race to try to get something together. And for the majority of movies I end up working on, the songs usually play a, a bigger element in the actual movie. I mean, I think that this particular venture crossed the line. Uh, you know, it was important to try to get something for people to continue the energy for the end titles. But, you know, obviously there was a marketing element to the project which existed apart from the movie itself. Billy Idol probably needs no introduction, but... 
Let's give him one anyway. Billy, real name William Broad, first broke through at the height of the punk movement as the frontman of the English band Generation X in the late 1970s. He moved to New York in 1981 and paired his punk-like image and attitude with the glam rock stylings of guitarist Steve Stevens, and he soon shot to superstardom as a key figure for the budding MTV generation. His first hits were a new recording of the Generation X song Dancing With Myself and a cover of Tommy James and the Shondells' Money Money. Before long, it was White Wedding, Rebel Yell, Eyes Without a Face, Flesh for Fantasy, Sweet Sixteen, To Be a Lover, all the immortal 80s hits we know and love. And Billy, a film buff, he's a big westerns fan actually, played footsie with Hollywood. Oliver Stone tapped him for the role of Jim Morrison's drinking buddy Cat in 1991's The Doors, and the very same year, Billy would have played the T-1000 in James Cameron's Terminator 2 Judgment Day, but a motorcycle accident he endured in 1990 kept him from that opportunity, and it also minimized his role in The Doors as well. Also around this time came the Andrew Dice Clay film The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which featured the Billy Idol song Cradle of Love. The music video for that song, you might recall was directed by one David Fincher. Now, to catch us up to 1994, Billy was coming off of a pair of albums that saw him and Steve Stevens go their separate ways. Charmed Life in 1990, which featured Cradle of Love, and Cyberpunk in 1993, which was a bit of an experimental thing both in concept and execution. More to the point, Cyberpunk was a notable disappointment for Billy in the marketplace, and that is where he was in his career coming into speed. So, with that long preamble out of the way, let's hear from the legend himself, Billy Idol. I had taken this kind of uh, left turn a little bit away from the, the traditional Billy Idol sound. You know, the cyberpunk thing was a fun thing, but it was really for a movie. Initially, it was a movie project. It was going to be uh, the uh, Lawnmower Man 2. It was going to turn into a franchise, a director. He did the uh, Shock to the System video in the cyberpunk. And that's why I got him to do it because I liked uh, Lawnmower Man. You know, just, I liked to go. He'd done another, he'd done another one too with uh, Denzel Washington, another cyberpunk movie. And Cradle of Love was for Ford Fairlane. So I had done song for a movie, and I'd written a bit uh, song at the end of Days of Thunder. I, I didn't do it but in the end. I couldn't do it. Um, Coverdale did it. You know, uh, this song at the end of Days of Thunder. So it was fantastic. I mean, it's just great to be involved in, in movies and uh, living out here in Los Angeles. It's just magic and um, speed. I think we came late to it. You know, we were one of the last things they put in we were, with that song going out at the end. So we, I think we were one of the last things they thought about in terms of the soundtrack or the music. So we wrote a kind of basically a classic Billy Idol song that almost has like a rebel yell structure, you know, uh, first chorus, first chorus, middle bit drop down you know <laughs> which was perfect and i think you know becoming at the end of the movie i kind of knew we obviously saw a rough cut and so we could put a lot of things in the song that we'd watched in the rough cut you know so we can mention a train we can mention you know can mention the idea it's moving all the time and i hadn't done that before where you saw it you know and then you wrote a song you know before we just happened to have a song or someone asked you for a song you didn't see the movie necessarily this one we, we saw the movie in a rough cut and then we were able to you know, write songs lyrically that fit what had been going on in the screen. I did think it would have been great if Keith Forsey, my producer at the time, who really was a kind of hit maker, if he'd produced it really because it, it was part of the iconic Billy Idol sound was this kind of triumvirate of Billy Idol, Steve Stevens and Keith Forsey. But um, that chap, he did a really good job. So it came out great. 
it also it was a reunion for me and Steve. Me, me and Steve had sort of temporarily broken up while I made Charmed Life and Cyberpunk. So it was us really getting back together. So there was a reunion factor. Mark Youngersmith had done a fantastic job on Charmed Life and Cyberpunk, but uh, Steve's really the guy. That's that's he's the guy who can play. You know, it takes two people to play the beginning intro to Rebel Yell. Steve can do it. It's just he's just one guy. He's playing like three people. He plays the beginning to Rebel Yell. This guy is he's super. You know, his ability is just out of the just crazy. Now let's talk about Steve Stevens, and Billy's not kidding, by the way. Look up a YouTube video of Steve playing the intro to Rebel Yell. I don't think my brain could make my fingers do that. Just an epic, legendary figure in glam rock, hair metal, that whole scene. Steve actually played the Top Gun anthem from that film's soundtrack and won a Grammy for it in 1987. He also played guitar on Michael Jackson's Dirty Diana, and in addition to his work with Billy, he's played for Rick Ocasek, Robert Palmer, and Vince Neil. He's also released solo albums like Atomic Playboys, Flamenco A Go Go, and Memory Crash. And he still plays with Billy to this day. But let's hear from Steve on all this. We were already in writing mode, and this kind of came up, and we kind of just shifted and said, okay, let's write a track for this film. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if they gave us much of an outline of what they were looking for, but up-tempo was the word. So we said, oh, yeah, we can do that. We we do up-tempo. And then it was just pretty much, you know, uh, we came up with the music. Billy wrote all the lyrics. And then we it was done very quickly, went into the studio. I think it was two days total. Um, we used the drummer we were working with at the time, Mark Shulman, on it. And I think Mark was the only other musician on it other than uh, Billy and myself. I had come from working uh, with Vince Neil for a while, and all of my guitars were tuned down a whole step. Uh, ordinarily, guitars are tuned to E. The, these were tuned to D. And I just kind of left it that way. And the, ordinarily, we never do that with Billy Idol. Everything's usually standard tuning. So this one, um, when we've played it live, I, I've re reminded, oh, well, you know, why didn't I retune to – I just – Ordinarily, you know, we'd have done standard tuning for Billy Idol, but that's why it, it sounds a little bit heavier than some of the Idol stuff because of that reason. The guitars are tuned down a bit. Let's go back over to Mark Mancina. So I went over to Han's place and there's Billy and he had just been in a motorcycle accident. He had a broken leg and he was just kind of coming up with ideas. But what I loved about him is that the Billy Idol that we see on MTV, that Billy Idol, he's exactly that person. Like he's not, that's not a put on. He talks that way. He sings that way. I mean, we're by ourselves. He's got a handheld mic and I'm at the keyboard and he's going, oh yeah, you know, he's doing all that Billy Idol stuff. And I'm just kind of going, yeah, well, he's Billy Idol. That's what he does. You know, that's, that's what he does, you know? And it was really fun, but I just thought Rescue Me would have been so great. Oh, and fun fact about Mark and Steve. The guy who actually scored speed, Mark Mancina, um, I ended up working with on Assassins, the uh, Antonio Banderas Stallone movie. He knew that I played flamenco guitar, so I came in and played some flamenco guitar on that. Uh, so I don't know if that came about through speed or whatever, but I had heard about Mark also because I was a, a fan of Yes, and he um, he was a big prog fan. So uh, I think he sought me out knowing that uh, you know I could play some nylon guitar. Now a little bit about the recording session. 
In addition to guitar, Steve actually played bass for the song as well. I don't know why we we just didn't look for a bass player on it. Uh, or or I, I think maybe I intended the bass that I did to be temporary, but it worked well. Uh, put the bass down and then laid my guitars down and they seemed to work. And, you know, I'm not precious about any of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, book a bass player, but they never did. So which which was kind of cool. And I remember the interesting thing was um, when I was out with Vince Neil, um, we supported Van Halen uh, for about six weeks. And Eddie and I were friends and Eddie had gifted me a bunch of guitar amplifiers. He had just come out with a PV5150 model amplifier. And I used those on the recording of this. That's probably why the guitar sounds a little bit heavier than than when I was using my Marshalls. So that's the uh, that's the first time that I recorded with those amps that were gifted to me by Ed. How cool is that, by the way? Amps that Eddie Van Halen gifted to Steve Stevens were used to record Speed. Here's Ralph Saul. We did it at Ocean Way on Sunset, and um, the music was heavily informed by Steve, for sure, in terms of getting it down and i just remember little things about the recording like um i think the lead vocals bounce from left to right in the chorus that i did because i thought it would kind of sound cool and exciting billy you know he'd come into the room to check and see how things were going with the recording of the track and you know he'd throw up his fist and kind of curl his lip up, kind of like his signature look to convey that things were moving along to his satisfaction. And then he'd pop back out to the lounge and we'd continue working. So the song lands in the film. A funny side note here that Steve Maslow, one of the sound re-recording mixers we met last week, told me that to this day he always thought he had mixed it a little too loud. Nah. Arista Records and Chrysalis Records partnered on the release, and it was a modest hit. It peaked at number 38 on the Billboard album Rock Charts and reached number 47 on the UK Singles Chart. Here's Billy again. It was huge in Europe as well. It was because in Europe, the wall had come down. They were finally getting MTV in the sort of of Eastern Bloc countries. And this is what they first saw. One of the first things they saw was... The speed, you know, when we play in Europe, they want to hear speed. For them, it was like Serbia and places. This is where they were seeing MTV for the first time and stuff. And that's what they, they loved about it. They loved uh, things like the soundtrack to speed. You know, they loved the song speed. They want to hear it in you know, countries that Bulgaria or behind the Iron Curtain, you know. Then, of course, this being the era of MTV and this being Billy Freakin' Idol, there was a music video. It was directed by Andy Delaney and Monty Whitebloom under their shared Big TV moniker, and it's not very elaborate or anything, nor should it have been. It's a bunch of footage from the movie intercut with a club performance by Billy with tons of sweaty girls all over the place. It was just a fun, all sweaty, some sort of sweaty, glamorous kind of club, you know. (laughs) It was fantastic. Like there's a punk rock club downtown. You know, everybody started out in initially in the early days of L.A. punk, so we did it down there. You know, it was a bit of a hardcore, just a real shithole club. It was great, though, because it's just another bit. They've sort of brought this gritty ambience. And then I think they sort of put little bits of the movie into the video as well, sort of so they had all this sweaty girl, 
and then you had the, the stuff off the movie. So it was fun. It was just a fun shoot, you know. Sexy. Back then, things were sexy, you know. The theme of the video, unrelated to the movie, was very punk rock. So I remember I cut my hair shorter than I had ever had it before. And uh thought, well, you know, all right, it's good. I'm newly sober. I'm cutting my hair and I'm back with Billy Idol. So it was great. The video is actually really good. It's really it's gritty and sweaty and uh, it's really good. I mentioned the directors, Big TV. Together, these guys directed the videos for Soul to Soul's Back to Life, However Do You Want Me? Seal's Crazy, Paula Abdul's Blowing Kisses in the Wind and the Promise of a New Day, Tori Amos's Cornflake Girl, Spice Girl's Two Become One, and Lauren Hill's Do Wop That Thing. So that ought to give you a pretty good sense of time and place. I managed to track down half of that tandem, Andy Delaney over in the UK, and here's what he recalled. We got sent the track by Virgin Records, I think. I mean, we came out of like indie music in the UK, dance music stuff but we were doing well in the states and then virgin were like we're gonna make a music video for billy idol and we got like not the normal huge budget we just want to make a quickie do you want to do it you know we're like billy idol because when i was a kid i was a a late punk rocker right so generation x were like okay yeah billy idol all right i hadn't really been into his music for like 10 years before then you know but we were like, okay, we'll do it, but we need to try and recreate a punk club in London in 1977. Right? That was it. And they're like, yeah, but what's that got to do with the film? We're like, yeah, don't worry about that. We'll figure something out. You know, it's got to be in a club. It's got to look kind of grungy. We went looking at all these punk books and our recollections and stuff as a kind of lookbook. And then that got kind of upgraded to LA. Everyone was good looking because back in London in 1977, no one was good looking. Right. Not really. So that was it. It was very simple. And we met Billy and we were like, all right, Billy, oh, you know, how's it going? And do you remember that? And we were trying to reminisce about the old days of the punk scene. And he was like, oh, mate, I can't remember anything. Like, don't even ask me. Like, all right, okay. I won't ask you why you can't remember anything, Bill, but that's fine. And so, yeah, we got on with him and we found this club, did some casting, got everyone all greased up, did a bit of kind of styling that was a mixture of kind of a glamorous vision of 77 London and off we went. And the connection to the movie was like, oh, it's just going to be, the film's going to be playing on some TV screens and the camera will kind of race into the TV and the movie will be on the telly and that'll get us in and out of clips. You know, we didn't just want to just cut. And that was, you know, a bit of stop frame animation, just easy. I haven't been able to track down the name of the club they shot in, but Andy says it was in East L.A. and was part of the local Latino punk scene, so it could have been one of a few possibilities, some of them long gone by now. It just seemed appropriate to us. It was a black box we could shoot during the day, no natural light, pretty small, pretty affordable. Yeah, it was just a day downtown. And this is before downtown was gentrified, you know, so it was like rough and ready down there. And yeah, the trouble is we shot it in a club that was too small. We wanted it to be cold and sweaty. We couldn't get any decent camera angles. And also we wanted to shoot it anamorphic because we figured that would match better with the film, but the budget didn't stretch to anamorphic lenses and just crappy things like that. So uh, it didn't quite have the look we wanted. We had a grungier vision originally. It could have been realer. It was too stylized for me. We wanted like as much as possible. If you see Billy, you're still aware of the crowd. So it wasn't like you can just shoot the band and then they can go and then you shoot with your vignettes 
but there was some of that at the end of the day we were shooting vignettes without the band in so you do band on their own but with foreground people then a couple of side angles it's like one of those things where we had to do a lot in a very limited time really and we were just frustrated that we weren't able to craft the images as well as we liked you know if it had been anamorphic it would have had a really different vibe still would have been gritty but it would have been cinematic and, and my my letdown was like oh when you cut to the movie the movie just got a different cinematic feeling and you can get that anamorphics in a small space work brilliantly well and the way the focus falls off on people is really good and it it was just it still bugs me to this day it's like why don't we just couldn't we get the lenses jesus but it was fun one day shoot long day bill was great the boys were great it was just a bit of a laugh really um and then the studio guys came down from fox guys came down i think we we're like oh right, how are you doing and they didn't they were just fine they just like <laughs> what the hell this is to do with the movie you know, it was like recreating some vintage punk thing, but it worked because speed, obviously, it's got a double edge, you know, meaning for people in punk rock music, different <laughs> form of speed was going on. And so um, it just kind of worked, I think. It's not one of my finest hours, but it was great to do. It was of the time and, you know, we were making a music video. Billy had just done some videos with Fincher. And they were really stylized and they were beautiful. And so we were like, oh man, we're going to work with Billy. Because we'd done Paula Abdul and Fincher had done Paula Abdul. And we were like Fincher freaks. And we got to hang out with Fincher a few times. But um, what I do remember is when we were doing the post, it was the OJ Simpson white Bronco chase. So we were in an edit suite in Hollywood. And like there was this OJ chase going on all the time I, I remember the oj chase more than like finishing off the video i mean we did a rough cut and put it together and then just when we we're doing the vfx of going into the tv screens watching that which is the kind of time stamp for me that was kind of it man andy and monty no longer work together though they're still friends they made the film love is blind together a few years ago and that was the end of their partnership but they had a 30-year run which is pretty remarkable andy was most recently in post-production on his upcoming film holly by nightfall while Monty, Andy says, is living in Cornwall writing these days. Now, I said earlier that Billy is a Westerns fan. Both Billy and Steve are film buffs, as it turns out, and Steve has some refreshingly varied taste. I hit him up for his favorite movie, and he went from Taxi Driver to Bride of Frankenstein to The Best Years of Our Lives. Both of these guys were stoked to be involved in a project that featured actor Dennis Hopper, and beyond that to be pitching in on a movie that featured a lot of folks trying to break on through to the other side. We're fans of people like that because of Easy Rider as well. I ride motorcycles, so it was huge to seeing something. And then I've done that. I've ridden across America. Didn't throw my watch away, but we, we rode across America. I've done that because of that film, because of Dennis, really, because he's sort of showing us, you know, the counterculture in movie. So it was kind of great sort of being part of his sort of second Hollywood renaissance, you know, after Blue Velvet and everything, you know. I enjoy doing the soundtrack things because you can kind of step out of what's expected. You know, your your possibilities are endless. And I like being inspired by visuals. Even uh, when Billy and I uh, will come up with something, we'll talk about a film or we'll watch a film together just to inspire us. Maybe something totally unrelated, but we do 
think in visual terms a lot to get ideas. Obviously, with you know, Eyes Without a Face is is uh, you know, title came from a French horror film, and so yeah, doing soundtracks is uh, liberating a lot. And I haven't done that many, but they're they are special. Yeah, it is it is pretty cool. You know, we felt like this was kind of a rock and roll movie, you know, and it felt different than the other action films around. We were happy to be part of something that felt like the next step in high adrenaline movies. Keanu was going from, you know, uh, the kind of comedy films he'd done to action as well, apart from he'd done some serious films as well, but he hadn't become an action hero. So it was like, it was really cool. And then look, it's John Wick and everything today. So, you know, it became part of the American film firmament, you know. I think a lot of it is about the chemistry between Keanu and Sandra Bullock, you know. And Dennis Hopper is fantastic in it, you know. It's good chemistry. And obviously a director who looks at things a little bit different and wants to prove himself. you got a lot of people who want to prove themselves in this movie and are going to really go to the extra umpteenth extent to make something really, really great. That means a lot to me because we came out of punk, you know, initially where we, you know, we were new and, you know, you want to see people break through, you know, you just do because that's, you know, people gave us a chance or whatever. It's just great to be involved in that, you know, where people are sort of advancing their careers. And it was part of reinvigorating me and Steve. I mean, that, that's, it was great. You know, it really did a lot for us. And uh, we're still playing together and this is a million years later now. I mean, we were playing it recently on the Billy Idol show. So swapping it off between Scream and Speed, you know, <laughs> because in that space, there's just another song we do, Scream, that uh, we, yeah, we sort of trade it off sometimes. One night Scream, one night Speed. It's also a great rocker. And it never fails that if we have, you know, kind of slower song or something, we'll throw Speed in right afterwards to kind of get the audience up. And it's just so much fun to play live as well. By the way, Billy and Steve just came off of a stint in Las Vegas late last year, and they're even playing a big Super Bowl pregame program through On Location next weekend. Billy says they're hard at work on a new album that should land next year as well. Ralph Saul, meanwhile, says he's kicking a memoir idea around, and he's got an ongoing project with his band All Too Much that he's hoping to put out into the world soon. But anyway, go figure, right? This song, that feels like a silly throwaway on a 90s movie soundtrack, actually played a key role in the career of one of pop music's biggest superstars. It got him back on track with his longtime guitarist and helped them reintroduce their iconic sound to the world again. Billy and Steve recalled going to the premiere of Speed and how that was one of the first big public things they did after joining forces once again. And indeed, 30 years later, their contribution to the film remains a popular staple of their set list. It's kind of wild. I, know, I couldn't have imagined that we would seriously be going this long. But it's been fun. So uh, as long as it's fun and we're getting somewhere enjoying the music we're making, that's, that's it. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour, with Billy Idol behind us, who's up for a dive into the 90s movie soundtrack heyday? There's like this amazing combination of like having Iggy Pop's nightclubbing and Perfect Day by Lou Reed, and then also this like really super modern electronic music and then Britpop. If I was gonna say a number one all-time 90s soundtrack, this would be it. Wood, Birth Ritual, State of Love and Trust, Seasons. Join us as I welcome Variety Senior Editor Todd Gilchrist to help break down a bygone era we'll never see again. 
these were not songs that were high profile in the zeitgeist and he unearthed and gave them new life as opposed to going yeah we all know that uh you know turn 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 is a banger you've got stuff from helmet and house of pain stuff from Teenage Fan Club and De La Soul, Living Color and Run DMC, Biohazard and Onyx, Slayer and Ice-T, Faith No More and Booyah Tribe. I mean, come on. Look at these pairings. All of that and more next week right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHpod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50mphpodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.